listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, we're going to start today uh, by discussing some sad news, though thankfully nothing as um, angering or maddening as what we talked about last week. Uh, I believe it was overnight this past evening, uh, we're discussing this on May 19th, that we found out that Dr. Ravi Zacharias passed away at the age of, I believe, 74, if I if I remember seeing that correctly. Um, can, can you talk to us, Sam, a little bit about Dr. Zacharias and why he's important and why we would kick off our show discussing him? Ravi Zacharias is, uh, briefly, a Christian apologist. Uh, he... Uh, and uh, something of a philosopher, even, of the Christian faith, one might say. But um, he is, because of his uh, pedigree, because of his work, and because of his relatively scandal-free life, uh, the closest that I know of of there really being any scandal is there there were quibbles about whether or not it's appropriate to refer to him as doctor, because there are debates over whether he had an earned doctorate. And when people pointed that out, they said, look, it's normal in Indian culture for people to call someone a doctor in that case, but we get it, we'll stop. So like, that's basically nothing. So decades of work in advancing the cause of the Christian faith, answering objections, being known to be a gentle, congenial man, and again, the worst uh, quibble that one had about his life and integrity was whether specific, like, what title he should actually be addressed as. Like, okay, who cares? Like, that, all of those things, combined with really, I've watched him uh, answer questions and things like that, and again, you just get a very, you get a very genuine feel from him that he is very interested in gently but firmly putting forth the truth of the Christian faith in a winsome way, and to have all of that together makes a man worth remembering, I think. So, I had the opportunity to hear him speak. I want to say it was back in 2015, though I may be wrong on the date exactly. Uh, But out here at Oklahoma Christian, each year they do something called the McGaw Lectures. Um, They bring in a world-renowned theologian or apologist or uh, someone with an immense amount of credibility uh, within the uh, theology to speak. They do a private lecture with graduate students and others who are closer to the school, and then they do a general public lecture. Um, The year before I heard Dr. Zacharias, uh, Dr. N.T. Wright came and spoke at the lecture, and uh, in years since, I know Miroslav Volf, uh, Dr. Volf, has been one of the speakers uh, for the lectures. But I remember going to hear uh, Dr. Zacharias speak, and some of the things you talked about are what struck me. Uh, was just how warm he was on stage, uh, just just how genuinely pleasant the man was. Uh, 
to be clear, he had some very firm convictions uh, and certainly to be, you know, an apologist of any merit, an apologist uh, of any substance, you have to have firm convictions and be prepared to defend those tooth and nail. Uh, but even when you would see clips of him disagreeing with people and oftentimes uh, being attacked by people or asked a question to be put in a sort of gotcha situation, maybe by a member of the audience, um, the care that he had for the people who were addressing him, friend or foe, if you will, uh, was always apparent. Um, he was always someone that you felt genuinely cared, not just about defending the truth, but about defending it in such a way that didn't alienate the person uh, who was questioning it and who was skeptical. Um, you know, he, he, I don't know that he's going to uh, go down as, you know, maybe one of these apologists who's tied to a particular view or a particular argument. Uh, but his work uh, will not soon be forgotten. Um, he started what's known as the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, uh, Arzim, which is based out of uh, based out of Atlanta, and that's continuing on with his uh, daughter. I believe her name is Sarah Davis. She's the CEO of it. Um, probably the 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 view or the teaching that sort of I would most associate with him is uh, his view on what it takes to have a coherent worldview uh, and the idea that it has to satisfactorily to, to quote Wikipedia here for the second week in a, in a row, answer four questions, uh, origin, meaning of life, morality, and destiny. And what he was expert in is taking Christianity as well as other worldviews, other religions uh, and other non-religious worldviews, and basically uh, measuring those up against um, those four questions of whether or not uh, they were a coherent worldview, whether or not they could answer questions of origin, meaning of life, morality and destiny. And ultimately, he found, and I think we would agree with him, that Christianity is the only one that satisfactorily answers uh, all four of those questions. Um, but like you said, he was just a just a genuine person, um, just a joy to listen to. Uh, you know, he, he's done a lot of great work within apologetics, and he's done a lot of great work within showing how to present apologetics, not necessarily just the argumentation itself, but, you know, the, the manner in which it should be presented. And, and you know, his, his loss will be massive uh, moving forward, but we're thankful for what he was able to, to accomplish during his lifetime. Absolutely. And I would just add a lot of what his work seemed to focus on, especially was uh, Islam and uh, some uh, interaction with the intellectual orient, for lack of a better word. Um, and I think that's significant because, one, lots of people in the West don't know that much about Islam. Uh, what they know about it, they usually get from either uh, movies or even worse, still video games. And so they don't really have that much of a great deal of information. What Ravi tried to interact with Muslims and 
a very helpful way that uh, was winsome while also absolutely holding uh, Islam as an ideology to strict tests of scrutiny. And especially in his dealings with the East, uh, people tend to forget that the Western world, in, at least in part, is shaped very specifically in how we think and put things together. Uh, we are inheritors of an intellectual tradition that relies on the likes of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, uh, people who are very, very different in how they view things. And so we end up being frustrated when trying to convince people that uh, have a more, quote unquote, Eastern view of logic. Uh, as Ravi once uh, put it in a uh, conversation with Norman Geisler, I believe, uh, the note was made, or at least Ravi once noted that in the East, people tend to think of things in a both and way, whereas in the West, we tend to think in an either or way. And those aren't huge word differences, but that sort of argument and that sort of disagreement can get really frustrating very quickly for both sides because there are different rules of engagement. And Ravi, I think, very helpfully navigated that. He's very, it seems like he was very Socratic in his approach. Um, he, of course, given that he was in India, uh, you know, he, he was born in India. He lived in Delhi for a while growing up there. Um, you know, he would have had a significant amount of exposure to uh, Eastern ways of thinking that, you know, you and I probably can't appreciate, at least not to that level. Um, you know, it's it's something where he was able to uh, he was able to present the truth in a way that, you know, made sense uh, to, to those coming at it from, from a different angle. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's something where he, his, his loss, it, it's difficult because I, I don't really know that there's another person quite like him, uh, within theology, within, uh, apologetics at large. Um, I don't really know who you look at, uh, and say, um, you know, this this is the guy who's going to step into his shoes. Someone will. Uh, I'm just not sure who that will be. Um, you know, and so we'll I suppose we'll see uh, who steps up to sort of fill that void. But with his loss, he's indeed left a void. Absolutely. And uh, really, my final thing, and I mean it when I say my final thing, because I know I can say that a lot and end up talking for hours. Uh I actually, of all places, just read a very touching tribute written to him uh, by the writers and authors at the Babylon Bee. It was very tongue-in-cheek in its tone, as is anything by the Bee, but it I very much enjoyed reading it. It is something that I would absolutely commend, and the title um, was, I believe... Uh, Ravi Zacharias, age 74, deemed un, world deemed unworthy of Ravi Zacharias, which pulls on the strings of uh, the themes from Hebrews 11, that the truly faithful, those who, in spite of being confined to dungeons, who have to live out in caves, 
because of their genuine lived faith, the world doesn't deserve the truly faithful. So I appreciated their uh, their calling on that motif, even in a somewhat silly way. Well, you know, one of the things that sort of struck me with this is, uh, of course, you and I, um, you know, being in churches of Christ and being, um, you know, certainly on social media with a lot of other people who who, who preach for churches of Christ. Um, one of the things that you'll see a lot of the time when a major figure outside of churches of Christ passes away is some resentment toward them expressed on social media. Um, you know, when Billy Graham passed away, I, I remember, you know, vividly, you know, preacher after preacher and member after member coming out and basically saying why this wasn't a big deal or why it didn't matter. Let, let alone the fact that, you know, it's not appropriate to do that when a man has passed on uh, beyond that, just sort of spitting in the face of a legacy, even if you don't necessarily um, agree with every position that the person held. I've not really seen that with Dr. Zacharias. I've seen uh, a surprisingly high number of people basically come out and say, you know, this is a guy that who, who will be missed. This is a guy that um, this is a guy who will be uh, remembered. His work will be remembered. He's done a lot of great things. And, and I think that speaks to sort of the uh, the universal nature of his approach. Um a lot of what he taught is applicable in a litany of situations. Uh, a lot of what he taught, at least the basic principles, um, are, are useful to. I, I can't imagine um, there being a Christian who can't find some sort of utility from uh, Dr. Zacharias's work, at least from some part of it. Uh, and, and that speaks to the work that he did. Uh, and also the 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 manner in which he did it. Um, and so it, it's something there's there's a he, he wrote a ton. I mean, he wrote a ton of books. Uh, if I could recommend one, I would probably recommend Jesus among other gods uh, as being uh, one of his two or three best works uh, and probably the the best sense of who he was and what he was about teaching. Um I, I mean, looking at the Wikipedia page, there's, I, I don't know, there's maybe 25 books on here, uh, 25 different bibli bibliographic entries. Uh, but Jesus Among Other Gods, if you were going to pick up just one, just to kind of get a sense of who he was uh, as far as what he was about, uh, that would be one. The other one would be Walking from East to West, God in the Shadows, which is more of a uh, personal work describing his uh, his, his personal journey. Um, I suppose those would be the, the, the two, uh, to look at. Um, I, I know for me personally, I've, uh, I've got both copies on my bookshelf. I've given out copies of each of those to different people, uh, because when I went to the event at OC, they gave us extra copies. And so I passed a, along a few of those. Um, and you know, his, his work is very much worth reading, worth exploring because there's, there's something there for you. Um, you know, there's there's very much something there uh, for you if you make any sort of claim to be a Christian. Moving along, uh, there 
has been some other news worth talking about this week. Um, some news that fits, I suppose, more of the stereotypical stuff or the typical stuff for, for what we discuss. And um, the first is that a, a couple of days ago, uh, the HEROES Act passed through the House of Representatives and at some point will be up for vote on the Senate floor. Now, Sam, you can correct me if I if I misconstrue some of this, but my understanding... Oh, of, I will. All right. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, my understanding of the HEROES Act is that it is basically another stimulus bill. Uh, this one set at about $3 trillion. But the idea is that it puts more money uh, in the hands of uh, individuals, first of all. Uh, I believe the limits uh, for uh, for individuals and couples are the same, but that there's an increase in money per child up to the third. And so it's I think it's twelve hundred uh, for an individual, twenty four hundred for a couple and then twelve hundred per kid up to the third. So it, it maxes out at six thousand dollars per family. Um and then I believe it puts more money in the hands of uh, the healthcare industry. Um, and it doesn't do a few things they were hoping it would do, but it needed to at least try and get through the house. Um, and so it's a bigger spending bill. I've seen that the Senate has uh, some members of the Senate, including Mitch McConnell, have basically come out and said that the bill is dead on arrival. Uh, and some other senators have said this has no chance of passing until after Memorial Day. Um, I'm curious, Sam, what your thoughts are on the government spending another $3 trillion uh, and what that sort of looks like and what that would do. My kind of initial reaction is I just look at it, and uh, this is going to be a very specific mimetic reference so this isn't even insider baseball between you and me chris this is me playing insider baseball with myself at every position um there is a meme of uh, the milky way galaxy through like the lens of a telescope viewing the stars and over it a faint overlay of carl from aqua teen hunger force saying it don't matter None of this matters. So that's my initial reaction of just like I like just seeing that we can just throw trillions around. I look at them. I don't even care anymore. Just just put the money into the bank account. It it doesn't matter. It's not real. Like it, it it's basically monopoly money after a certain point because it's fiat currency and it's valuable because we say it's valuable. More seriously. The utility of a second stimulus check, uh, proposals were made for, uh, as can get mentioned, uh, uh, $2,000 monthly checks, which is even more extreme than Yang's proposal of a universal basic income of, of $1,000 a month. Uh, the $2,000 a month uh, proposals are kind of being shelved right now because of this bill. But uh, having another stimulus package passed, having... Uh, and having more discussion and debate about that in light of the pandemic, it's it's endemic 
of the fact that the only solutions to problems that politicians can think of is to throw money at something. Regardless of what the problem is, what the nature of the problem is, why it's a problem, the political solution is always, it's one of two things or a combination of the two. It's always either just throw dollar bills at the problem until it goes away or cede authority to governmental figures until the problem goes away. It's always one of the two. And when you see your own money and you're just throwing money at a problem, hoping it goes away, that's fine. I don't care. It's your money. But with governments, they take that money by force. And you might say, well, it's not by force. If you believe that, don't pay your taxes and see what happens. You are forced to give them money. And you cannot ask them to maybe not spend it on the stupidest things possible. They'll spend it how they want, and they don't care what you think. So that, that's my very cynical but realistic response. You know, it's it's something where the situation... My difficulty with all this is that the situation is uneven. Um, here in Oklahoma, we went the entire weekend without recording a new death uh, in the state from coronavirus. Uh since then, we've recorded six, but we're, we still haven't topped, I think, 600 deaths in the state. Um, that's 600 out of the nearly 90,000 in the U.S. up to this point. Right. Um, what I'm getting at is the economy here is reopening and is doing so fairly successfully. Um, you know, we've got a good chunk of our employees are back to work Um It'll take some time for some businesses to recover, and frankly, some won't. I saw JCPenney is closing over 200 or right around 200 maybe of their stores. Um, but, you know, our economy here is doing fine. We've not had to, at least relatively speaking, we're, we're getting back on track is what I'm getting at anyway. Right. Uh, people are going back to work. People are able to travel a little bit. Um you know, energy still has its own problems, but not all of those were caused by coronavirus to begin with. Um, that being said, you look at states like California, which is under strict quarantine, and New York, which is under strict quarantine and has probably needed to be under strict quarantine with how out of control the situation got in the city. Um, you look at situations like that and you realize that different States have different levels of, of need right now. Um, the problem is the state governments where things are going poorly aren't equipped to address the problems themselves, which is uh, which maybe hints at an issue between the theory of the country and the reality of the country. The theory being that states have a good bit of power and the reality being that, no, they really don't. Um, you know, that federalism isn't really all that federal anymore there's you know the states don't have as much power as they had even you know 100 years ago and so looking at that you know they're they're in my situation and i can only speak for for mine for mine and kelsey's um we we're not gonna send the money back if we get more stimulus money um but there's not an urgent need for us. Um, 
And even if there were, you know, a more creative solution to be had other than throwing the problem at or throwing money at the problem, we wouldn't need it. Um, We're we're okay. And more and more Oklahomans are starting to sort of turn the corner as businesses reopen. Um, That's not necessarily true right now in California, in New York, in New Jersey, in some of these uh, states that have been hit hardest by it. And that's sort of the difficulty is, as far as addressing the problem, the government has gotten to the point where if the government is going to do something about it, only the federal government is equipped to do anything about it. I mean, states are begging the federal government for supplies and for relief. Um, And because that system's been set up, well, the, the federal government's not going to you know, give money to one set of individuals, but not give money to another set based on location. Um, And so it's something where I'm not sure that spending $3 trillion of, you know, not money because we don't have it, but spending $3 trillion is the right way to go. In fact, I'm I'm quite sure that it's going to have some significant long-term consequences Uh, Unless the government gets its budget in order, which I have a hard time imagining it will do. Um, At the same time, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm creative enough to figure out what the solution should be. Uh, And and that's fair. That's 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 sort of what I'm stuck with is, you know, there are some people who if they don't get relief, they're going to lose their house. They're going to lose their business. Um and, and I'm not sure that uh, – <laughs> I, I, I think the government ought to do something. I'm just not sure that this is something they ought to do. I was completely uh, without reservation in favor of extending the income tax deadline. That gives, uh, that gives people an opportunity to sort of try and weather this storm a little bit. For some people, that's not going to be long enough. Um, right. For some people, it's just not going to be long enough to to uh, only have until July 15th. For others, that'd be plenty of time. Um, but my my problem is the government is the given the given the national level of this and given the severity of this, um, the government is probably the only organization large large enough to handle something like this to respond on a national level. Uh, that's a problem with how we've set up the federal government, that it it, it is the only thing large enough to do that. Um, right. And there's a problem with the fact that, I'm, you know, we're spending money that we don't have. Um, but like I said, I, I'm probably hypocritical on this because, you know, I'm I'm thankful that I got stimulus money. I'm thankful that I'm not paying interest on student loans right now. I'm thankful that I'm not... Uh, that I'll receive, you know, more stimulus money if the Heroes Act passes. Um, but long term, for the sake of the country, I'm not sure that any of those things are 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 good. Right, and I just have a few observations to add to that. Um, uh, some people will say, "Well, what's the problem with with a three trillion dollar act to give people twelve hundred dollars at a time?" Uh, I ran some numbers very quickly. Assuming a population of 350 million people, and we've talked about how it's not quite that. And so 350 million people. 
if you gave everyone, regardless of age, just every person who is a citizen of the United States, and we assume that number is 350 million people right now. Chris, how much do you think it would cost to give everyone $1,200? To give, give every, me a ballpark. Just give me give, a ballpark number. To give everyone $1,200, um, yes. $350, that'd be about $300, that'd be about $350, maybe $400 billion. $420 billion, which is not $3 trillion. Right. Now, granted, $420 billion is still a hee-haw number. Like, it is still a we are, we are obviously in crazy town kind of number. Well, in, in fairness, relative to, the nas- relative to the national debt, it's not a hee-haw number. It's, uh, right, no, it's... It's that's that's a very if our national debt was four hundred twenty trillion dollars and that was it, then, you know, people would feel a lot better about all this. Yeah, that's right. Because our GDP is one point three trillion, give or take. So we were like, goodness, we could just buckle our belts and just pay it off. But um, so here's the thing. When people present the HEROES Act as just a way to put money in the pockets of Americans and saying, okay, but $3 trillion, $3 trillion is about, I'll just go ahead and I'll do a ballpark estimate here. It's about, okay. To give everyone in the country $8,400, it would be $2.9 trillion. We are not getting $8,400. Like, every person in the country is not getting $8,400 from this bill. So there is $2.5, we'll say, to round everything down, trillion dollars that is not being put in the pocket of a, of a person a uh, citizen, were, resident, uh, alien, trying to establish whatever class of person you might want to try to put them in. There's 2.5 trillion that it has nothing to do with putting that in, and this is the problem with spending bills like this, because you throw out three trillion dollars, and there's just a num that is just a number that numbs the mind when you hear it. And that's half the point, because you see the number and you, your eyes glaze over and you stop thinking about what actually is being spent. You don't see the frivolous spending on government programs. You don't see the spending that goes towards a congressman's like pet project or some group or company or whatever. You don't see, for lack of a better word, the pork. And when we cut pork out of these things, you, or when we start entertaining the idea that there is pork, we start wondering why. Why do you need $3 trillion if you're just going to put $420 billion into the pockets of people? And again, that's my high estimate assuming you're putting that into everyone's pocket. 
including like infants, including like we are going to make a bank account for your infant child and put $1,200 in it. Not just, oh, we're sending you a few extra hundred because you have kids, in addition to you and your wife working. And so it just becomes an absurd amount of money when you actually start peeling it back. And so that's why, in part at least, I'm glad that, at least from the Senate's point of view, it's dead on arrival. Because it's going to be more spending that is meant to ameliorate people who have genuine struggles. And... That is just being used as a cover to get two and a half trillion dollars into whatever else. The second thing you made a remark about uh, federalism. Um, the thing is, the premise of the United States Constitution is to keep government small and relatively inoffensive. The problem is that every government in the history of mankind starts life much the same way. It starts life as a tiger cub. And Chris, I don't know if you've ever seen a tiger cub. They're adorable. You just want to pick them up and just rub your little face on them because they're so cute. I have not watched the Netflix documentary, no. I, I haven't watched I haven't watched Tiger King either, but I've seen tiger cubs. They're adorable. Now, granted, I like cats in general. So, like, cats, great. Here's the thing. The only reason that your pet cat doesn't kill you is that it's not physically large enough to be able to. That's the only thing that stops it, ultimately. When you adopt a tiger cub, you are, you are hoping that you can train and condition that animal that by the time that it's big enough to kill you, it won't want to. And so all of that really belabored analogy to say, when we look at this and say, wow, the federal government has all of this power and that creates issues, or, well, only the federal government really has the power. Well, yes, because it, was, it started life as a cub, and now it's a grown tiger, and it's large enough to wrap its jaws around your throat, and you can't really stop it. So just that's something you always have to bear in mind. It's... The law of unintended consequences, basically. So with this, I I tend to agree. I'm I'm happy that the bill is dead on arrival for a lot of the same reasons. I do think something will get passed, though. Um, Absolutely. Uh, for something not to get passed, uh, I think would be Congress admitting that they think this is going to be finished by the end of the summer, uh, which is just simply not going to be true it may be true on a lot of different levels um right but you know one of the biggest indicators to me that it won't be finished is we're talking about playing uh events sporting events through the end of the year in empty stadiums and i realize that's just one particular sector but that's a lot of money that's a lot of revenue um the nfl just raised its debt ceiling apparently nfl teams have a have an individual debt ceiling and each NFL team's debt ceiling was just raised by $150 million. I don't know the logistics of all how all that works. Um, but I know that they're anticipating suffering a huge loss this year. And, um, you know, they're, they're still going to try and play the season perhaps in empty stadiums, depending on how it progresses. But Congress, uh, 
to not pass a bill would basically be admitting that they're not going to uh, uh, that this is all going to be done by the end of the summer, which uh, at least wholesale, I don't think it is. Um, and they don't think right. so either. But with the bill, the other thing is I think they're going to pass something because it's an election year and you don't want to be, right. if you're up for reelection, which is everyone in the house uh, and a third of the Senate, if you don't want to lose your seat, you don't want to be the guy that kept some of your constituents from getting money. Um, and, right. and this that's is part of the problem with pork. Yeah. This is how pork passes is, yeah, we got you your money. We had to spend six times as much as it cost to do it. Uh, but we got you your money. Um, you know, and that's going to be more pronounced. Uh, now the situation's stickier because in the Heroes Act there were some provisions for federal student aid uh, relief. Um, you know, ten thousand dollars per person public and ten thousand dollars per person private, which I have no idea how the federal government's going to plan to forgive private loans unless they're just sending money directly to yeah, those loans. Like- that's the only way, realistically, other than just declaring again by fiat, which they can do. They shouldn't. And there are all sorts of problems to create, but they can do that because, well, they have a monopoly on force. But anyway. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is they they'll end up, uh, you know, that there will probably be, probably be some provision for student loans in there because, you once it becomes a serious consideration once it's not all of a sudden just magical christmas land but it's it's something that the government could feasibly do um and more and more people are talking about it you don't want to be the senator that uh you don't want to be the senator that votes against student loan relief either um right especially if it's a relatively small amount you know it's it's one thing you know for uh, a senator to vote against canceling all student debt, period, which, you know, that that would uh, have some pretty significant financial ramifications. It's another thing when it's, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, one semester's worth of uh, worth of fees and tuition, if even that, um, which for some people isn't going to make much of a difference at all. And for others will make all the difference in the world. Um, right. And so I'll be curious to see exactly how this looks based off of what some senators have said. Uh, it, it Nothing is getting through the Senate before the Memorial Day recess, um, which, you know, it, it's one of those situations where if they're going to do something, they probably need to do it as soon as possible. But if they're going to do something, they also need to be extremely smart about doing it. And that takes time. Um, and so I don't, you know, I say I don't envy their position. I know I don't envy their position because I'm not going to run for their position. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they've we have put them in this position, and I don't mean you and me specifically, but we have put them in a position to where they're the only ones uh, that are in a position to be able to help like this. Um, you know, a lot of times we will talk about uh, how it should be private charities that are uh, that are helping. Um, and it should be. I agree. Um, and there are some charities who are doing everything they can to help. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, when the government is taking so much money out of the economy because of taxes, then, you know, all of a sudden, 30 to 35 percent of revenue uh, 
is 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 gone. Um, <laughs> that's that's a that's a lot of money just all mm-hmm. of a sudden gone. So I you know we'll see what ends up happening with it. Um, I the fact that they got one stimulus bill done suggests that they they can do it again. Um, right. And the fact that it's the same Congress that we're not going to have an election between these stimulus bills passing more than likely is uh, uh, means they're going to probably do something because they've shown that they can do something before. Um, I'm just I'm just a little scared of what the something is going to look like and what it'll mean for the country long term. Right. And that's the thing. The long term is the problem. Uh this is going to be one of those eye-rolling moments, but um, Hans Hermann Hoppe of, uh, of uh, great fame in uh, some circles, at least, uh, he makes, I think, a very salient argument about democracies and republics, uh, in, especially in his book, Democracy, the God that Failed. But he makes the point that leaders in democratic and republic societies they they are to be they aren't to be preferred over a monarch and to us that sounds odd because well of course you want to vote for the person that's ruling over you instead of having the person inherit to the title or appeal to the divine right of kings but hans says okay hold on put that aside consider Kings or queens, uh, whether this is a patriarchal or matriarchal monarchy, whatever it may be, assuming they are not replaced violently or otherwise, they have to leave the consequences of their actions and decisions behind to someone, usually someone within their family, so someone they ostensibly care about. They have intrinsic motivation to build a legacy that isn't a complete dumpster fire. Elected representatives that serve for maybe six years at a time have no such motivation because when they get replaced, it's by someone who competed against them, so there's animus there, and it may be someone who is completely ideologically opposite of them. And so they don't have motivation to build a legacy that lasts. They can run things into the ground and then hand it off to the next person. And you say, well, then that person can complain. Okay, yeah, here's the thing. Everyone complains about their predecessors. Bush complained about Clinton. Obama complained about Bush. Trump complains and will complain about Obama and so on and so forth. People don't care in democratic societies. They don't care about what the guy eight years ago did. They care about what you are doing now. We are trained politically to think in the short term. And so we see things in the short term way without having to think, wait a minute, eventually there's a long term consequence here. And so this is really an exercise in long term, short term and how to balance that. On top of that, um, with elected representatives, they act in the collective, too. Um, 
you know, with 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 Trump and Obama and Bush and Clinton and going back on and on and on, um, it rings a little truer, um, only a little, but a little truer in that situation, the complaining does, than in a situation involving Congress. Because, you know, some of the problems that members of Congress will complain about were created not by their political enemies, but by their political friends by their political allies uh people who were who have been there for 20 30 40 years um you know and so you don't just get to nail it to one or two people like you might be able to do with uh with the with the president because you know the president um as much as there is just a four to eight year window uh unless you're fdr to create a legacy um you know, there's still a legacy left there. Um, you know, we we remember uh, Reagan for uh, how he handled uh, the USSR. We rem- we remember Reaganomics. We remember FDR because of the the New Deal and navigating during wartime. Um, we uh, we remember Teddy Roosevelt because of his uh, well. Uh, his, his attitude, uh, his personality, and his preservation of national parks. We we remember all of them for that. That's a lot, a lot less true uh, with members of Congress. Um, you will occasionally see one tied to one act, but that's just one act. That's barely a legacy. Um, and so, you know, you see individuals running it into the ground because, like you said, they are and we are short-sighted um you know sometimes you'll hear the refrain well what about our kids what about our grandkids let them deal with that is the attitude we see most often and and of course no one no one talks like that is the problem no one says oh we're just going to let them deal with that they'll figure it out they're smarter than we are uh they'll have to be smarter than we are to get out of some of these situations um but no no one talks like that but that attitude reveals itself in the actions uh, of the uh, senators and representative representatives. It reveals itself in the uh, bills that get passed into law. And so, you know, it, it, it's something where that long-term outlook is, you know, a rare jewel uh, in U S politics and U S governance. Um, and it's something that, you know, we desperately need more of, but we don't we don't see it. Now, you, you referenced something there uh, with regard to Trump complaining about uh, Obama, and that has become a national news story again uh, three and a half years nearly after Trump has taken office. Um, Sam, can you tell me what in the world Obamagate is? Vaguely. Um, essentially, Obamagate centers around a alleged series of missteps and abuses by Obama officials and arguably Obama himself, especially regarding the abuse of FISA warrants, the FISA courts, and uh, the unmasking of different uh, figures within uh, Trump's uh, campaign and later staff. Especially, as best I've been able to tell, centering around one Michael Flynn. 
And why is Michael Flynn important? Uh, he got sent to prison. Uh, the charge, if my memory serves, officially is perjury. Uh, the charge was that he lied to FBI uh, agents, uh, which um, I don't think should be a crime, but that, that's a whole different thing. They can lie to you. So anyway, that that's neither here nor there. That's a whole different ballgame entirely. But um, anyway, so but the problem with Flynn is that one when it was when he was being charged and all, a lot of it was just basically, well, who cares? People get the runaround from the FBI, get tripped up by them and arrested as a result all the time. Who cares? And it was kind of obvious that some of those people, they weren't worried about it because it was happening to Michael Flynn, someone who was connected to Trump. So it's very much don't care, didn't ask, and they're with Trump, so I don't like them anyway. But uh, now there's very serious uh, uh, discussions about those abuses, whether it was just to put uh, Flynn in prison, whether he'll get out. Uh, there's kind of back and forth on that, but also potential of investigations. Uh, Attorney General William Barr has seemed to signal that he doesn't expect uh, Obama or Biden to be indicted or investigated directly. But questions come up about FISA courts and about uh, the propriety of different acts when investigating or looking at political rivals and political opponents and potential ties. And so it'll be interesting to watch everything unfold. But the main thing is the main question will be, can we get past orange man bad, orange man rad to really actually ask, were things done in a proper and fair manner? And more importantly, I think the great uh, diagnostic question is, imagine it's 12 years ago, if Bush had done the same things to Obama and his staff would you think it's a problem? If so, you should probably think it's a problem now. If not, okay, fair enough. At least you're consistent. But that it's really just a a crucible for orange man bad, orange man rad. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting the president has commented on this several times in the past few days. Um, he referred to it as the greatest political scandal of all time. Uh, which even if everything he's saying is true, I'm still not sure that that's true. Um, but he's he's talked about the crime and made the uh, members of his press briefing say what it is. Uh, you know, they'd ask him what crime, and he said, "You know the crime." Um, well, as someone who is trying to figure all this out, I didn't immediately know what he was talking about in that press briefing. Um, but that's another discussion for another time. Um, he has also uh, suggested that Lindsey Graham ought to drag Obama in front of the Senate uh, to interrogate him, uh, to question him. And Lindsey Graham has sort of backed off that idea and said, I don't even know how that would be possible. Um, you know, there he's currently seeking power. Graham is, is seeking power to probe um, different Obama officials. It's something that, 
the Senate at least is taking somewhat seriously. Um, but because this this griefing that has gone on allegedly has allegedly continued even into this year. Now, uh, this is not something that happened once or twice back in late 2016, early 2017. Um, but allegedly it's continued on throughout Trump's presidency. The idea that uh, the idea that Obama and his administration uh, has given Trump a hard time effectively through, you know, various different means. It You know, it's worth noting that this is the same root allegation that goes back to when Trump shortly after he got in the White House, he made against Obama saying that Obama ha- had wiretapped him um, right. and listened in on a bunch of different things. And, and that's a. Uh, yeah, you know, it's the same root allegation. Um, I don't know whether this has happened or not. Uh, if there's enough evidence, I think it's uh, worth investigating because it, it's it's something that uh, it, it's something that you know it, it is very serious if it ended up happening. I mean, this is not a light allegation by any stretch. Um, you know, you mentioned the orange man rad versus orange man bad thing. I, I think there's a sort of second angle to this, um, and you're going to see this on Twitter probably more than anywhere else as as loving and gentle of a place as Twitter can be, uh, is the idea that Obama is somehow this is somehow the former president who is above reproach. Uh, that right. this is a man who can do no wrong. That this is the first truly celebrity president. Um, or the one that bothers me the most. Scandal free. His only scandal was that he wore a tan suit once and all the Republicans freaked out. Yeah, let's not talk about Fast and Furious right now. Um, oh, you, do, you don't even want to get me started. When you said that like Trump wanted Lindsey Graham to drag him in front, I was like, I don't want him dragged in front of the Senate. I want him dragged in front of a criminal court. Not even that, like a war court. He's a war criminal, as are most presidents. But yeah. anyway, moving on. Well, it, it's something where that image of Obama is going to, uh, until it is shattered, um, or reinforced, depending on what the results of the investigation are, um, is going to sort of guide a lot of public discourse on this. Um, yeah. You know, public opinion of Obama by people who do not identify as right-leaning, right-leaning is fairly high. Um, yeah. You know, this is a guy, Obama publicly responding to this, I think the one thing I've seen from him is he tweeted the word vote. Once all this came back out last week, um, right. and you know, I mean, he, he's he's not wrong. I mean, people should vote in accordance with their beliefs by and large, even if that means not voting because you believe in not voting. But that's a we're going to have that discussion in a few months, Sam. Um, but we're not going to do it right now, uh, oh lest, boy. lest it be forgotten. Um, I uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, but but looking at that, Obama is he's regarded as being, you know, this very pristine character, this very pristine individual. Um, and putting aside the a fact for the second that I think you and I are, to put it very mildly, skeptical of that reputation. Um, it, it also shouldn't be what 
what guides the investigation. And thankfully, it's not going to be what guides the investigation, but it will guide public discourse. And so what you're going to see is a lot of um, dismissive talk concerning the investigation, not just because it's Trump at the forefront, although that would probably be reason enough, but because uh, Obama is the center of attention here uh, that, you know, this uh, uh, this left leaning superhero um, is somehow coming under fire it is something that is uh, unconscionable to uh, to Obama supporters. It just it, it's something that they can't handle. Um, and we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, I don't know if this is real or not. This could all be some sort of uh, hoax orchestrated. Uh, by Trump, for all I know, I but but I don't know, and and that's where the investigation needs to come into play. Um, you know, it's uh, we we have in consecutive weeks now uh, made fun of the phrase, "If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear." Um, but this is a situation where if if Obama's reputation is as sterling as people say it is. Uh, then an investigation into the what we're really talking about here is the transition uh, uh, from Obama to Trump, right. um, which I, I believe uh, Hugh Hewitt came out in a Washington Post article and referred to as the glory of the republic. Um, Hugh Hewitt being the president of the Nixon Foundation. Um, you know, Obama bases that instantly give you concussions. Yes, but there's there there's there's a modicum of truth to it too, right? The idea that right. you can transfer, uh, you can go from one regime to the other when the regimes might be uh, ideologically opposed to one another, uh, with no bloodshed and relatively little tension, uh, is you know is, is a feature, not a bug, um, in our system of governance. Uh, We'll see, uh, you know, it, because if if that process was interfered with in illicit ways, that is that's deeply troubling, um, you know, and it 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 in my mind, it would sort of put a and not an asterisk, but a question mark next to at least the first four years of the Trump presidency, um, depending on what happens in November, because if if. uh you know, if if it comes out that Obama had uh, interfered with the transition, or at least those close to him had, and uh, it comes out that you know that they, they were responsible for illicit activity, you have to wonder uh, what the Trump presidency would have looked like without that burden. Um, and it's something that people on the left will not want to hear. They will not want to put up with that sort of talk. But oh, yeah. I can't. I can't help but wonder. You know what? What does it look like if if Trump doesn't have to worry about all these different investigations, uh, some of which may have turned out to be to have been manufactured? So, um, right. I'm not. I'm not saying that none of the investigations should have taken place. I'm saying I. I don't. I. I don't exactly know what was genuine here and what was manufactured, and that by itself is problematic. Absolutely. And I think it, which, whichever way the investigations go, 
I have two hopes about it. One, that it will make people focus more on what is sometimes called the deep state, and I'll explain that, and I promise that's not me putting a tinfoil hat on, but also uh, an increased and healthy skepticism about governance. And so there's those two things, and let me explain it very briefly. When I say the deep state, I don't mean like some like, ooh, they're all out to control you sort of thing. But um, deep state in my parlance is a shorthand for unelected officials that are put in place by one leader and stay until another leader removes them. And unelected officials present a great deal of difficulty in a republic uh, because they don't necessarily have to have credentials. They don't necessarily have to have they don't have to actually be fit for the position they're appointed. And so that's a problem. But also because they are appointed, there is always going to be that question of are they loyal to the process, to the concept, or are they loyal to the person who appointed them? And you're going to have that problem no matter who, like you're going to have that problem with Obama officials. You're going to have that problem with Trump officials, Bush officials, all of them, because it's just the nature of what happens when you appoint someone. And so there's that. But also, when people start looking into things like FISA courts, uh, FISA warrants, that sort of thing, or the Steele dossier and uh, Peter Strzok and Carter Page, like those people and those things, the things around them, I hope they'll realize, well, wait a minute. Governments are made of people. And specifically, there seems to be a high occurrence of people that are a bit uh, suspect, yes, a bit uh, skeezy even, or people that are just outright not trustworthy, that are willing to bend rules to go around you to do these sorts of things. And you might say, well, they would never do that. Yes, they would. They absolutely would. And you might say, well, the United States government would never do that. Yes, they would, because the United States government is the same government that funded Afghani freedom fighters in the 80s and then turned around and declared them enemies and terrorists that had to be hunted to the ends of the earth. It's the same government that put Saddam Hussein in power and then decided that he needed to be killed and couldn't wrap their brains around how it happened. And it's the same government that fun, that funnels heroin into the Middle East and uses that to fund building tunnels and then blows those tunnels up with missiles. So all of that to say, I hope that this will make people start to think, hmm, maybe I can't blindly trust these people and maybe I shouldn't just accept something because it's from the government. Okay, you can all take your tinfoil hats off now. Yep. Well, and it, you know, what it also on a on a base level, on a practical level here, what it makes you do is is makes you realize that you shouldn't at the very least rely on the government for anything in particular, because there's no telling uh, if you're going to get it and uh, if they're going to give it to you with no strings attached or anything like that, because if, if or that they won't kill someone to get it done. Yeah. Well, and, you know, even just sort of finding the through line here with the, with the stimulus bills. Um, are there people who, who have some say in this bill who are genuinely concerned about 
the American public. Yes, I, I don't believe Absolutely. I'm not I'm not of the opinion even that every single member of Congress uh, is somehow um, making decisions uh, against the best interest of the American people. Uh, or rather strictly for the interest of someone or something else. I think there are, um, maybe this is naive of me, but I, I think there are some in Congress who are, uh, who are actually somewhat, maybe not noble, um, but honest in their motives. The problem is the vast majority of them are not honest, uh, in, in their motives. Um, the vast majority of them, uh, you know, can't be, trusted any further than you can throw them um right and i would say- just add very quickly that it's not even just that these people start out bad it's endemic to the systems mm-hmm. these systems lend themselves to revealing the worst parts of like it re- these systems lend themselves to amplifying the dark triad personality points that you have so it's not just that there are no good congressmen. It's that these systems make the best of people monsters. Yep. Well, and it's it's something that we get we get you know one chance every year, every two years, every four years, depending on your office, to make something of a difference. Yeah, you can. There are other things you can do. You can call. You can petition. You can do all sorts of different things, but. Um, when it comes to voting, you have you do have a chance to make your voice heard. Um, now, granted, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about voting when we get closer to uh, Election Day, because uh, I am not at all a fan of uh, effectively guilt tripping people into voting one way or another, um, namely through the uh, voting for a third party is the same as voting for someone else. Um, whereas there were, I believe. 109 million registered voters who did not vote for Clinton or Trump in 2016, something like that. Um, when it when it comes to Give that, yeah. When it, when it comes to that, um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of intimidation or bullying or anything like that to to extract a vote from someone. But the reality is that, you know, you you get a chance to get fresh blood into the system if you will part of that is you know uh, some of this would go away if we had term limits in congress uh given that all of a sudden you know you don't get people who stay there forever for generations um you don't get families that stay there for generations um but like you said some of it's just endemic to the system and it's not exactly clear how uh, how it would go away. I'm not, I'm not sure that there is a pure model of government as it were. So other than, I, I suppose there will, there are some who would argue anarchy. Uh, I'm not there, but I, I suppose that might be, um, Give a, it pure, a few months, Chris. Yeah. Well, the difference you know. between a minarchist and an anarchist, do you want to know what it is? Um, two letters. Well, no, no, okay. I'm setting up for a joke that's not nearly as clever as the people that tell it think it is. The difference between a minarchist and an anarchist is about six months. Well, mine, mine was better because. Oh, it was two letters. Absolutely. So, uh, Sam, you have anything else you want to discuss today? 
Uh, very quickly, uh, Elon Musk talking about taking the red pill. I think that deserves mention. Yeah, he was on a uh, he was on Joe Rogan last week, right? I believe so. Yes. But uh, he just put on Twitter, take the red pill. And uh, Twitter, because it's Twitter, had a meltdown. Trying to figure out what could it mean. And then you had think pieces about trying to describe the red pill. And it's just, oh, it's it's like candy for me. <laughs> but um, two things, just very briefly, I want to explain, if I may, like, Sure. Yeah, what go. the red pill is and why it matters, uh, because a lot of people have misconceptions about the red pill. So the red pill is firstly people associate it immediately with the matrix. That's the imagery tied to it. You can take the red pill or the blue pill. And some people wrongly assume that the red pill is tied to right leaning ideas. And that when you take the red pill, it means you become a diehard conservative Republican or whatever. That's not necessarily true, uh, mainly because the red pill has a lot of different uses and meanings. But um, and then there's also the fact that it's older than the Matrix. Even I think it's even in Total Recall. So movie references. But fundamentally, when you take the red pill. What that means is not that you're going to end up being a Republican, because I know plenty of red-pilled leftists, and they're some of my favorite leftists, as much as that phrase might not make sense to people. But um, taking the red pill is, in essence, coming to the realization that you are presented every day a very clean, clear-cut picture of the way things are from one side or the other because there's all there's blue pilled left and blue pilled right and blue pilled right would be a total uh, unshakable confidence in the constitution in the kind of typical republican platform and thinking that republicans really will push the republican platform a blue pilled leftist would be very typical Democrat and really kind of believe in and think that Democrats care about the Democrat platform. Taking the red pill is taking a step back and realizing there is more at play here. It And it looks like starting to notice Republicans had the House, the Senate, the presidency, and they did nothing about Roe v. Wade, despite always saying, if you'll just give us those three things, we'll deal with it. Or it looks like whatever policy that Democrats really care about and saying, okay, we've got the House, the Senate, presidency, and we don't get that. And realizing there is a lot at play and starting to see, okay, in some cases, you're just being outright lied to. There is spin, there is deceit, not necessarily by politicians, although usually yes, but also even by mainstream media. Because, not because they're all just malicious, vicious liars and you should watch InfoWars, but because they have agendas. They have things that they want to keep going. And for a lot of them, it's tied into establishment politics and realizing, wait, I need the stability of the establishment to keep my job and to stay relevant. So 
They will churn out whatever they think is necessary to do that. Now, it matters because there's a very important caution with the red pill. Take one red pill, not the whole bottle. And I'm just plagiarizing Michael Malice at this point when I say this. You're only supposed to take one red pill. Don't take the whole bottle because eventually you do that and you get black pilled. That's not good. You don't want to go there. But just one red pill is enough to kind of make you step back and say, okay, I need to have a more critical eye. I need to look at things critically, even with people I agree with, even with people I trust and accept. I need to bear in mind that there is more than just a surface level representation and reading here. Uh, best exemplified in all uh, irony for me, Reagan's words, trust but verify. So Elon saying take the red pill. People are taking that in all sorts of weird directions. And I don't know where Elon will go with that uh, because he's, he's a bit of a trickster. He's a bit of a joker. He likes to just toy with people on the Internet. at least. not like in real life, but he's very much into that sort of meme magic culture. So he could just be messing with people. But it's interesting to watch them out there. Thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.